He thinks that I said it was a terrible idea. Quite often I find my default is to try and pick holes in things and to challenge people. What I do remember thinking is I would use this. I knew that Brent would use it, so he had some one and a half customers at the very least. And that is pretty much my starting point. Martha Lane Fox's CV stretches for several pages with some of the most recognisable household names. Lastminute.com, M&S, Chanel, The Open University, and not forgetting The House of Lords. A digital entrepreneur who's passionate about the world of tech and how we use it can be thanked for making our everyday easier with innovations and solutions that are second to none. She has a passion for helping others, which shines through with a charity work for children and even prison reforms. And Martha can also brighten up our evenings with a spot of karaoke thanks to a string of bars so i'm assuming your favorite song is i'm still standing <laughs> you're not assuming you have prior knowledge that's very unfair the ai uh, has told you um, yeah. yes uh, it's not my favorite song but it's pretty relevant for my last 15 year journey and it's actually pretty easy to sing most importantly what is your least favorite karaoke song which you must have uh, you must have etched you know, in your I mind. Think anything with mariah carey celine dion or anybody that's got an actual voice is always a challenge. Um, I also have to tell you that the most sung song, I can't remember if it was last year, but it was up to the last kind of 10 years, was Don't Stop Believing. Yes. And I'm so over hearing that yes. song ever again. I don't think I've ever, ever been inside one of your uh, your karaoke booths and not sung it. There you go. So I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it now. I'm sorry. Sorry to tell you. I'm one of those guys. Anyway, we're not going to just talk about karaoke. I'm going to do a little quick fire round just to warm you up, but you're technically already fairly warm, I'd say. Um, but just so I know. Cold-hearted, be careful. <laughs> well, we'll see. I'll be the judge of that. Uh, cats or dogs? Oh, cats. Bengal cats. I've got two. Oh, Bengal. Mm. Interesting. How long have you had them for? Ten years. Okay. I'm breaking the rules of a quick fire. No Sorry. more questions. Holiday destination? The sea. Just floating in Anywhere, the sea? Anywhere, yep. Doesn't matter. No, where I feel Just safest. out at sea. Yeah. Good. Like in the perfect storm, that kind of thing. <laughs> perfect, yep. yeah. It's <laughs> the ideal scenario. Uh, tea or coffee? Green tea. Okay. Because of health? Or just you prefer it? I prefer it. And partly maybe health, but I only discover that after starting to prefer it. Okay. Uh, the last piece of art you purchased? That is a good question. We have some wonderful art in our home. We're very lucky. Um, the last one I purchased, I think, was a Bridget Riley print for a charity um, that helps prevent torture. Okay. And what does it look like? It's just one of the beautiful Bridget Riley stripes. Okay. We'll have to look that up afterwards. We'll put it in the show notes, actually, if we can. Perfect. Well, favourite karaoke song we've already asked, but what's a song that should never be sung in public? You don't get to say Journey. <laughs> National Anthem. <laughs> Good. Uh, there's the patriotism shining through. That would be the US taxes uh, moment. <laughs> Just, yeah. uh, winter or summer? Winter, I think. I really prefer the cold, and I physically enjoy being in very, very cold temperatures. My best friend jokes that when she comes to my house, I have, she has to put her coat on because I never turn the heating on. So I think that winter pips it. We're going to go back to a time when seasons mattered. Um, so we're going to go back to, you, stu you studied ancient and modern history at Oxford. What led you to study that? A pretty short runway, I think. My father is a classical historian and was always incredibly 
enthusiastic about the study of history. We never really had summer holidays. We had Greek or Latin history tours. We'd go to Italy or we'd go to Greece or sometimes France. We'd always spend the first night on the floor of the airport because he never wanted to book a hotel. And then we'd spend the next 12 nights in at least 40 degree heat traipsing around sites. But miraculously, all it did was give me a deep love of history rather than a rebellion and a rejection of it. And um, I, being an extremely bold and adventurous type, thought I would follow in his footsteps and study history too. But I particularly loved ancient and modern history because you could jump from, you know, India under Gandhi to Pericles and Athens via Charlemagne in the middle. And I loved that ability to make those links between huge trajectories of time. And I think actually, well, being in technology my whole life, that's been phenomenally useful because it helps you put context around stuff. Mm, and I guess you get to, I mean, the most common uh, statement about history is using it to predict the future. Yeah, I don't know. I think prediction can be a bit of a mugs game, but I think it can give you some indicators about context, about, you know, likelihoods of stuff and about kind of importance and priorities. So, you know, I definitely think a lot about this moment of technology and people, you know, trying to make it either feel like the best moment or the worst moment and actually trying to think about other moments in time where that's been true and you know, what can we learn from that. So I'm less into looking in the crystal ball, but I'm definitely always trying to find balance. I have to say, as someone that just a minute ago predicted we'll have no more seasons, I'm delighted you also don't <laughs> think there's any value in your predictions. Thank God for that. I'm not predicting there'll be no more seasons. <laughs> that's a fact. Um, okay, so moving forward, what did you do between... Oxford and starting your first company. What was that Worked period? for Brent Hoberman. Very simple. Um, I went to join a strategy consulting company after I left university. Quite by chance, I had no idea what strategy consulting was. I didn't have any idea what this company was, but it was a startup. They were looking for people. I was the 11th recruit and Brent, I think, had been the 9th or 10th, my co-founder of LastMinute.com, and changed my life forever because I learned about businesses. I learned how to kind of deconstruct business and think about it because that's one of the things that is quite helpful about learning consulting. And I met Brent and he asked me to help him start LastMinute.com. So it really was an incredibly important phase of my life. And I saw this consulting company grow from me as the 11th employee. When I think when I left, it was 150 people. We'd been all over the world doing different projects. And most importantly, I'd started to see how the internet was blowing apart the media and telecoms business. Do you remember the original pitch you gave? I mean, do you... Like, for, last, it, for last minute? Yeah. Well, no, no, just to you personally, to get you on board. Oh, like, did you think you were completely mad? Do you have to talk he, to your parents and no, be like... Didn't talk to my, no, didn't talk to my parents. He thinks that I said it was a terrible idea. But I'm sure I probably just said that to wind him up. And because quite often I find my default is to try and pick holes in things and to challenge people to about stuff, which is not necessarily a very good characteristic. But what I do remember thinking is I would use this and I knew that Brent would use it. So we knew that we had some one and a half customers at the very least. And that is pretty much my starting point. Not that you should only ever do things that you personally can see a role for yourself in, but it is a help when you're taking a big leap of faith age 25 to think, yeah, I can actually imagine using this service. And what was your original role? Like, what did you specifically uh, do at that I point? I think that is a very interesting interpretation of what founders do. <laughs> you do everything. So what did I do? I got ink for the 
the bubble jet printer to print out the business plan. I did the business uh, margin calculations with Brent about how we were going to make money off our flight business. I did all of the work around the branding with Brent. You know, we did everything together. We wrote a plan. We had to then go and raise money. We had to stop recruiting and hiring a team. And then I think the miraculous thing between us was that work kind of naturally just fell out in a good way. We didn't ever specifically say, you do this, you do that. It was Brent's idea. I was very clear that in the end, the buck had stopped with him. And uh, that was um, something that he was also extremely kind of generous in his relationship with me and with the business. But, you know, we shared everything. If one day I might be doing recruiting of people, one day he might, one day I might be going to talk to the board, one day he might, one day I'd be at a big travel conference, one day he might. You do everything as a founder. And just going through the, uh, I guess, the key part of the story, which is probably something you've told a thousand times. So, uh, you know, you might have a new spin on it. You might have exactly the same sentences on it. But obviously, you had that period of uh, immense boom and incredible success. And I just remember being, I think I was like eight or nine, just in, in, in a minicab with my dad. And every advert was lastminute.com on the radio. And I just remember the feeling of I'd never heard of an internet company advertising itself on the radio. I, and I, I've always remembered it because it was the first I've ever, I'd ever heard. Thanks for that, because I remember that there were a lot of things that we did that were quite category defining. And I don't say that to sound like an arrogant twat, but we put adverts on the side of buses and people hadn't done big adverts for kind of glitzy brands on the sides of buses before. And I really remember a meeting with our advertising agency where they presented kind of this incredibly complex creative and our brand was very, very small in the corner. And both Brent and I were like, what? This is a bus. Just put lastminute.com in massive letters on the side. And they're like, no, no, no. It gave us a million reasons. Why not? Obviously, that was the right thing to do. And then they had all these buses going around London. For like 20 grand, we managed to get a hugely competitive deal to get all of this space because buses just weren't a thing. And then that kind of kicked off the next phase of being able to do advertising on radio. And, you know, we never did TV adverts until uh, much, much later. But you're right. It was a massive shift in how technology was perceived, how people thought about um, the internet. And it's easy to forget. But, you know, in 1998, when we actually did the first transactions and turned the website on, it wasn't a big battle to encourage people to use lastminute.com. No one was interested in lastminute.com. What was the battle was to say, yes, it's safe to put your credit card details in here. And it's okay to buy things on the internet. That was what we were convincing people to do. And did you go and meet, you know, the PayPal mafia, for example, people like that that were responsible for trying to make people feel comfortable about the internet payment um, side? What we were trying to do was just make sure that the process and the brand and the product gave people confidence. So we worked incredibly hard to get things that were just such incredible deals that you would have to go through the pain of in your head of either worrying about the internet or your credit card or whatever it might be, or frankly, our website, which was still pretty rubbish. And um, a particularly enormous moment which was one of those inflection points in my mind was when we got Iceland Air to give us a £99 flight to New York. And again, now it probably seems like, well, that doesn't seem so extraordinary. But back then, it really was jaw-dropping. quite extraordinary. You did have to stop in Reykjavik, but it was only a short stop. And I think that Brent and I called Haldor Haldorsson from Iceland Air 500 times. Bless Haldor. I finally remember having lunch with him and he relented and he said, yes, we could have the spare seats on the flights for £99. Actually, it was brilliant for him because he managed to fill up flights, got much higher capacity on his flights, which is the, the whole game in an airline business, as you know. 
And we obviously got this incredible product. And I really do think it did change a bit about how people saw travel, how they saw the capacity to just hop over the ocean. I mean, again, arguably, now you put that in an environmental context, I don't feel the most proud of it. But it was exciting. And our strapline that I remember writing at about half past midnight one weekday was, you know, encouraging our users to um, live their dreams and something about being spontaneous and romantic. And that was what we were caught up in, was it really did feel as though this was opening up the world in a new way. A great deal. Obviously, 10 years later, Iceland's economy went under, so nothing to do with you. Nothing. No, nothing to do with those no. 99 Haldor, pound Haldorson. deals. Yeah, no, his, not his fault. Not his fault. No, no. So, to um, be saved by women, NB. It's very true. Okay, moving forward, you managed to IPO before the dot-com bubble bust. Two weeks before. Two weeks before. Um, But whilst that sounds really good, I mean, you know, good, objectively, smart, just in the right time, as the founders, presumably that doesn't really mean much to you in terms of outcome and reality and stress levels, and you're stuck with another 50 weeks regardless anyway, right? So can you take us through that period and some practicality for guests so they, they know what that means? Well, it's a hardcore process going public and layer into that trying to run and grow a business in parallel. And, and it's not an excuse, it was just a thing. I was 28, Brent was 33. It wasn't like we knew a whole load of stuff. We weren't kind of in the city every day talking about flotations. This was all new. So not only did you have a new industry with a bubble about to burst, with a company that was growing, with a massive, massive, massive expectation on us. Again, it seems ridiculous right now, but we were on the front page of the papers pretty much every day. I would get stopped in the street for my autograph, which again, I mean, what for an e-commerce entrepreneur? It's completely bizarre. But it was such a was the excitement that had built up around just something that we were capturing, which was much less to do with us and much more to do with the UK and kind of entrepreneurialism being sort of let out of the bottle, Blair government, you know, change of face, change of perspective in the UK. And it really was all bound up together in one thing, I think. And then there was on top of that, this kind of huge, enormous uh, expectation about what the tech sector was going to become and be, which was never, ever going to be realistic because every single company was being valued as a winner, as a potential, you know, billion dollar, $10 billion company. Not that that's the only measure of success and one I actually really rebuke, but anyway, that's how it was being measured. And um, one in 10 companies, if that, were going to make it. So, We went public because it was the right thing to do to get the biggest amount of cash in order to be able to keep scaling the business and have a long-term future. But two weeks later, internet internet stocks blow up. Internet uh, creates massive stock market collapse beyond just tech sector. And we become the most reviled people in the country because all of a sudden, all of this excitement and hype, oh, we can blame them. They're responsible. You know, the fact that it had come from the US, most of this noise, the fact that it, you know, obviously it was investors making these decisions, it wasn't us, all of that was um, hard to stomach. And frankly, not only then are you managing a business, trying to grow a business, trying to live up to the expectation, but also we were trying to navigate through some pretty unpleasant headlines, particularly, as I hope Brent would agree, about me. Because guess what? The young woman was going to always be the one that was going to be knocked. Uh, I was the one that had been built up and I was the one that was going to be knocked. So I really remember um, two weeks or so after the IPO, I never just, as we've already discussed, go to bed and go to sleep because I find that quite hard. But I just had to get into my bedroom and not talk to anybody for 48 hours. I was completely and totally wiped out by it. I was getting handwritten letters telling me I was a bitch. It was really that severe and but from who what type from of person? investors saying that oh. i ripped off the whole economy and it was all my fault and what was i thinking get back in my box in fact there's a 
journalists who shall remain nameless who wrote everything from I should be assassinated to I should wear a burqa to you know, all this stuff. And I think about it now and I think, God, actually, it was pretty bad then. But imagine if it was now in the age of social media. I wonder what I might have been up against. I don't know if it would be better or worse, but I fear worse. Anyway, as always, Brent was kind and generous with me and gave me the time to work through that. And um, the most important thing was to try and make sure that the company and the people working there for whom I felt primary responsibility were on the level and knew that this was just noise and we just had to focus on delivering great deals to customers and things would probably come back round, which they did slowly but it was slowly and you know we went from a share price I can't remember the exact numbers but the high of like £5.35 down to 19p mm. and that's a big collapse if you think about it, we hadn't really had much money to pay people so they're all being paid in options none of their options were worth anything all that stuff and you get into this horrible cycle where the press becomes the reality, even though the press is a complete, um, you know, and totally distorted reality. Yeah, and the press is calling the share price at that point. A bit, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, to yeah, the extent of yeah. creating the, yes. the outrage. Yes, exactly. Um, so that was hard. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So as the young woman in a room for 48 hours on her own needing the time. <laughs> With um, my head in the pillow. Yeah. 
But I mean, what about after that forty-eight hours? I mean, did you did you see a therapist? No, did you have I'm a coach? Fine. I was fine. No, I, no, I didn't actually. I think that's one of the things I'm incredibly lucky that I do have somewhere some resilience. That mm. you know, I can't remember what I did. Probably read War and Priest again, which is my go-to uh, resilience builder, um, and just rested and gave myself a break. But I was fine. It wasn't a kind of big mental breakdown. It's just I needed to go to sleep, and I only mention it because it was just such a physical reaction mm. to something that was happening outside in the so outside you're world. Good at compartmentalizing stuff. Yeah, I I am, I think. Yeah. yeah. My husband gets really frustrated because I can't actually talk to him when I'm reading the paper. I'm literally like, I'm reading the paper. He goes, surely you can answer my question. No, I'm reading. I don't actually think it's possible to multitask. You have to focus. What, what would be like the main takeaways that you have um, for yourself? Did you spend time afterwards reflecting? Are you a reflective person like um, that? I think I am. Um, I don't know. God, that's a deep question. I look inside my soul. I'm quite a practical person. I think it's useful as long as you use it. I don't really believe in the kind of just going round and round stuff without moving out of it and on from it. So I definitely think about that period of time and what could I learn as you know trying to be a leader about myself and how can I do better in the future? I mean, I hope I do, not to ask other people. But I don't enjoy the process of just reflecting for reflecting's sake. I think it's important to feel like it's being channeled somewhere. I had been at lastminute.com for what felt like 15 years, although it was only an eight-year stretch, really, because I was so intense as you can imagine. And I knew that I wasn't giving as much to the business anymore because my energy had gone from it. And I didn't think I was the best person to be doing what I was doing there. So it didn't feel very complicated. And Brent was brilliant and didn't make it very complicated. I was actually going to say something presumptuously, you might correct me on the basis of what the, you know, the, the media storm, but you must have been one of the most sought after young professionals <laughs> full stop oh, in the UK. Oh, yes, I was one of the most sought after young professionals in the UK. Yes, that's why when I walked out of the building with my small box of stuff, I was besieged. Not. I had a bit of a plan. I had been talking to our then chairman of lastminute.com, Alan Layton, about going to work in uh, Selfridges, the business that he was also chairman of. Um, so that had been bubbling away. I was never going to go off and do nothing. I had also helped start a charity called Reprieve while I was at lastminute.com. Yeah, I we used to have the board meetings in the cupboard in the lastminute.com office. Um, and Clive Stafford-Smith is an amazing person and my... One of my best friends, Seanine Lamb, was a young lawyer who had got me involved in that project. So I thought maybe I'll do more um, social justice stuff. I didn't really know exactly, but I knew that it was time to change direction. Before you had a chance, I guess, to go into the next stage of your career, you had this life-changing event. Mm. So what was what was the period leading up to that? And then what was life like directly after that? And I guess... I can already see you smiling with the whole uh, pretty shit <laughs> as the well, answer. It's very hard to answer that I question, know. actually. The period running up to it was actually quite great because I was having for the first time in nearly 10 years, two months off, three months off. I just met my now uh, partner, Chris, Goral Barnes. We were having a lot of fun. I was not working. I sort of had a plan and it was good. I was giving myself a break. I went to Colombia with a good friend. We decided we wanted to go somewhere where there was a festival going on and we looked at a map of the world and there were, I think, two big carnivals going on, one in um, Trinidad and Tobago and we thought, mm, that's Trinidad and Tobago. We can kind of see what that carnival might be like and one in Barranquilla in Colombia and Nick was like, that's where we're going. So we went to Colombia and it was completely fantastic. We had an amazing two weeks. So, you know, I did stuff like that which uh, was great. I love travelling about 
met Chris, and then Chris took me to Morocco to meet a good friend of his who was working on a film set there in a Sawira, um, south mm. south bit of Morocco. And I like Asawira. Yes, it's great. Mm. Uh, and we had a very, very severe car accident. I wasn't wearing my seatbelt, no one's fault, apart from my own. And I came out the car and I broke 28 bones and I had a stroke. And I would be dead if it, frankly, hadn't been for the money that lastminute.com had afforded me and also the contacts because I was able to get a private plane out of the country relatively quickly within the first 24 hours, go to an incredible intensive care unit in the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford, get the best care and all that stuff, which I promise you I think about so regularly because it was one of those sliding doors moments when someone else dead, me, able to survive and not just able to survive, able to walk, which again was far from certain for a very long period of time. So, yeah, I mean, I can't really tell you about the immediate aftermath because I can't really remember it because for the first week after the accident, I was in operations of 17, 20, 23 hours long pretty much the whole time. One of the things I was reflecting on recently, actually, was the amount of blood that I was given. I can't give blood because of the amount of prescription drugs I have to take, but you can, and some listeners might be able to. And uh, quite simply, you know, I'd again be dead if it wasn't for all that blood. When I think about that sometimes, I think it was something like 27 pints in one of the first four days or something nuts. So you have all these things that if you're interested in stuff like me, you sort of think about all those pieces putting together that system that kept me alive. And that's very humbling. But then, as you say, in the end, uh, it's pretty shit, (laughs) breaking 28 bones and having a stroke. And I think it's very easy for people to try and want to write a story about life which goes, she had this up, she had this down, she had this pivot into something else that kind of opened her eyes to all this stuff. And maybe it did, but the way I see it is something different. It happened, and I dealt with it. And some of the things that I thought were important before I found out were really important and continue to be important, like my friends and my family. And then just the actual uh, physical nature of now how my life is meant that I had to change what my working life is and allowed me a bit more time and energy on some of the things that perhaps would had been a backseat before. They just sort of shifted the gears rather than a kind of pivot into something completely different. Well, you mentioned you mentioned that um, I, don't, I don't know how you just described it specifically, but you said um, you had that accident and within twenty four hours you were in a flight and over somewhere else, etc. And you had the stroke. I mean, who like how were you conscious? Were you able to make any calls? Who who was doing? Do you have any idea how you even ended up there? Yeah, no, no, I know quite a lot. Some of it's private, obviously. Okay. I am. Um, But I had Chris with me and Chris's uh, very good friend, Duncan, and they quickly found contacts in Morocco and contacts outside Morocco. My mum and my brother came to Morocco to make sure I got out of there. So, you know, it was Alan, actually, our chairman, lastminute.com, got organised a plane for them to be able to get to Morocco. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that helped. No more kite surfing in Essaweria for you then. I wasn't able to. Chris was kite surfing. I think my I like sometimes pretend in my head that you know all these great sporting moments of my life are now over when actually they never even started (laughs) and i would imagine uh most normal people in your scenario would be like right that's all happened gonna take it easy considering but you decide to start start lucky voice yeah, actually decided to start Lucky Voice just before the accident in my oh, kind of uh, playing about phase. Why? 
because I loved Japan, I had met a couple of guys who said we should do this in London, Julian Douglas and Johnny Shaw. And I thought, why not? Let's give it a whirl. It was so fun. And I don't understand why when British people absolutely love singing, drinking and hanging out, it wouldn't work here. So that's why we decided to start it. And it was kind of fun thing to do, whatever I was going to end up doing after lastminute.com. But um, poor Nick, who runs it and still runs it now, Thistleton, I don't think he expected to have to come to my hospital bed and hold up models of Lucky Voice over my head while I was completely and totally and 100% high and was saying crazy shit to him. So he did a great good job at ignoring 90% of it while making me feel like I was part of the process. Okay, and that is why there's pink elephants everywhere. And every lucky <laughs> no, they're not. That's right. Um, so uh, how many... Yeah, lucky Voice has been going for a long time, though, now. Uh, well, we opened... So 2006, I guess, really. Yeah, 12 years. We're just about to open another site in London. Mm. We've got one in Dubai. We've got them in franchises all over the country. So, yeah, it's a little business, but it's a good business and it's fun. Yeah, where does the name come from? The name, I promise you, comes from a open call out to an office in Japan. Johnny, one of the guys who uh, came up with the original idea with us, sent to his office in Japan an open call to say, what would you name a business in England doing karaoke? And one of the names that came back was Lucky Voice. So we chose that one. So we owe it to whoever it was, and I don't know the person, I'm afraid. But one of the other names that came back, which I still sometimes just makes me laugh if I'm feeling a bit down was rubber chicken <laughs> that would have been great can you imagine <laughs> like where did that come from what did they think we were trying to do anyway okay so you've sat on a bunch of boards um, yep. channel 4 MS, yep. twitter yep what has been your favourite that's a good one and I am not going to tell you because um, I'm currently because <laughs> <laughs> I'm currently on one of those yeah, boards and I um, want to keep it do you know what I feel very lucky because again you know last minute I've got to change financially what I have to do in the world and what I'm going to baseline of just I'm these resources that I never imagined I'd have so I'm, I can pick what I want to do and so I've picked things that I am interested in already so I mean what a privilege to be on the board of Channel 4 and learn a bit more about the media industry and that particular brand and channel which is so fascinating Again, Marks and Spencer, people have had more reactions when I say I've been on the board of Marks and Spencer when I was on the board about that than practically anything apart from lastminute.com. Everyone has a view. Mm. Oh, the knickers have changed shape. Oh, you can never buy a straight leg trouser anymore. Oh, the socks aren't such good quality. What's happened to the prawn sandwiches? It was extraordinary. It really was unbelievable. I want to just dig into what a normal day looks like for you. Is there such a thing? <laughs> that's such a classic question isn't it when you read people's like life in the day or yeah. the paper or whatever like there's no normal day my days are crazy you might have um, a normal day well normal days I wake up right that's pretty normal that's great like, um, well the abnormal days must be terrifying for you exactly yeah. there's no waking I get up pretty early probably around six I really enjoy that hour before my identical twin boys of two and a half wake up so I do emails I read the paper how far I, did they crawl uh, they walk, they run. They're not crawling. Okay. They're, uh, they are running. See, ironically, friend. they do definitely They're, crawl, and you, you're <laughs> overestimating it so much. You're like, they did a marathon yesterday, actually. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, then, you know, I do physio, so exercise is inbuilt into my system really much every day. So that's typical. Um, and then it does depend. So one of the things that's frustrating about the life post-accident is that I do have to pace myself in a different way. And 
So I've been in Tokyo recently, and last week I was in Paris, and then I went to a conference in the countryside, and so I just am not able to be quite as on it this week because I'm a bit worn out. So I've had to just pace myself. So today I've had quite a nice day. I've done all of that, and I've come to see you here, and then I'm going to do another couple of interviews this afternoon in Soho. So it's a kind of different pace. Then tomorrow I'll be in the Lords. Then on Thursday we're hosting Dot Everyone Responsible Tech Summit. Dot Everyone is quite a big piece of my working life. I'm not in the office a lot, but it's part of my thinking because I was asked to give the Dimbleby lecture in 2015 lecture on BBC One where the BBC get 45 minutes of free television and one poor person gets 45 years of headache trying to decide what to say in it uh, I talked a lot that was back in 2015 about how I thought the tech momentum was going to shift and people were feeling uneasy and we needed a new way of helping represent people's voices in the debates about technology and not because I'm clever but just because it was really freaking obvious that has happened in quite a fast way paced way. So Dot Everyone is building a movement for responsible technology around Europe. We're doing a bunch of different things as part of that, but we're hosting a summit on Thursday, so I'll be at that. And then um, I try and keep at least half a day, often on a Friday, for reading and catching up, because increasingly I find, particularly as my role is a lot about public speaking or being a kind of balanced voice of technology in the world, that I need time to see ideas and think about things and read things and listen to things. And if I don't get that, then I'm not very good at my job. Have you seen Sir Ted Berners-Lee, um, his new plan yes. for the internet? Is that yep. related? you guys chat about um, we that? We chat, yes, yeah. absolutely. We talk to them a lot. The Web Foundation is great. Yeah. Um, I think it is brilliant that Tim uses his voice to say that things could be different because he has credibility. He has a huge amount of capacity to convene and do all those things. So uh, that is fantastic. I think, personally, that it... Uh, it needs more than just that optimism of people coming together to change stuff. And I always get worried when the sort of answer to Facebook is more Facebook or Facebook self-regulating Facebook. I do think that governments now need to get involved and properly and deeply and not just in a reactive way, children online, but more deeply and more uh, effectively across a whole spectrum of different issues. And I think that that's when we'll see the system change that might help. In my opinion, we are at this moment in time with the internet where we had this paced excitement and all these companies grew and, you know, e-commerce grew and then, oh my God, social media, that's now a thing. And that was never even imagined in 2000. You forget, well, it's easy to forget how quick this stuff has grown. And now it's like, what have we built? What have we created? And how much are we going to take responsibility for that? And I think we will look back on this probably five-year period and think, oh, that was weird. Everything was shaking out. But it did. And I still believe that it will and that we have a potential to do a lot of good using the internet-based technologies. I have a question. I've had many questions. I realise that's not going to be a surprise in an interview. Your children are two and a half. Mm -hmm. So in their teenage years, what does the world of technology look like? What have they got access to? Do you think about this? What is that period going to be? Yeah, this is something Chris and I talk about a lot, um, as you can imagine. I don't want it to be over anxious I think that what I perceive with some of my friends is because they're stressed about their use of technology it's rubbed off in the whole dynamic in the family and it probably sounds easy to say that when they're only two and a half and it's not really a thing yet but one of the things I, a couple of things the principles that we've talked through and obviously Chris is part of this conversation too it's not just me firstly I really love Sugatra Mitra's work on one laptop per child in the hole in the wall computer people should look it up if they're not aware of it but his basic premise is that 
use technology in public with your children. Make it a shared experience for as long as possible because it's when it becomes a thing where they want to go to their rooms and do this thing that is maybe not very helpful for their brain development or whatever it might be or keeping them awake at night or, you know, releasing the dopamine in an unhelpful time. And I really buy that. So try and make it something that's a shared thing. So when I'm on my iPad doing another freaking online shop, I put it on the table and I'm like, look what I'm doing rather than look obsessively on this. So small things like that. But then I also think they're two and a half. It's absolutely ridiculous to imagine what 10 years' time will be like. It's not going to be Fortnite. It's probably going to be AR, VR, you know, going into other worlds, not knowing what those worlds are mm. and so on. But I still believe that there is a huge, huge amount of incredible uh, learning, interaction, brain development that can come from the positive use of this stuff. And there is clearly something going on with social media that I don't believe the platforms have got a grip of yet. But I do think that will change because it will have to. Yeah, I was actually asking in the in the perspective of like positivity because you're such an advocate. So I yeah, well, I am. I'm a qualified advocate. Yeah. You know, I am an advocate, but I'm not a blindly optimistic advocate. I I see the perils and I see I see the arrogance of the sector. I personally do not think the sector has stepped up into its responsibility nearly enough. It's easy to forget that half the world is not online yet. You know, there's still profound inequities in this whole thing, and all of these things make me very uncomfortable. What would you advise someone, well, your own kids, to study? What do you think are really interesting subjects I don't that care what are they, relevant? I really don't care what they study. I don't think it's like that. I think you need to follow what you're interested in. And the main thing for me is about curiosity and rigour. So having the ability to ask questions, as I said, to be able to delve into detail and then come up from the macro. I found that was what history could give me. But, you mm. know, I'm sure I could have found that in physics. I'm sure philosophy would have been helpful. I'd love to speak better languages. So for me, it's much more about curiosity, enthusiasm and um, focus than it is about a particular subject. OK, we're going to start wrapping up. Um, what are we wrapping up? We've got presents. Yeah, well, you've already unwrapped your <laughs> present. You know, impatient, but you know, l- you know, looking back at a really wide career, what what can you say? God, was it your sounds proudest like I'm 85, and I'm going about to pop off. What I, I used wide, uh, do you not know long. Some, do you know long something? Would be rude. I don't know. <laughs> What's my proudest achievement? Yeah, do you have one? Do you have oh, a moment? That's a. Um, it's a question she hates. I which don't is why like that question. I don't, ask her to answer. <laughs> I'm not proud. Well, you know, it's a funny thing, isn't it? I am very proud of the work we did with the government digital service because, you know, lastminute.com was a thing. It got lots of attention. It was amazing. I feel very lucky to have been part of it. But, um, you know, getting involved in government and being given that access and having the ability to help a little bit move the dial in terms of how people perceive government, tough times in people's lives being made marginally better because the internet service wasn't completely rubbish, that felt enormously uh, empowering and fun and important. So I am very proud of that. I am to be, you know, I am quite, I feel proud of myself that I sometimes just keep going. I mean, being proud of yourself is an actually excellent answer, to be honest (laughs) with you. Because I mean, a lot of people aren't, but a lot of people don't um, have that kind of honesty or perspective. And, uh, you know, considering what you actually went through, very upbeat, I've obviously got you on a good day. Um, Okay, um, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given in your career? Is there anything that stuck out? (laughs) Well, my grandfather, my father's father was an entrepreneur. He started a 
I'm a state agency business, don't judge him. And he always used to say, always fish upstream. Now, I'm not a fisherwoman and I don't really know anything about fishing. But Chris, my partner, uh, revealed to me because he loves fish and he loves fishing, that that's a very good tip because not it's not an average place to fish as a fisherman. So you, what it meant was go and do something different. Go and be in a different place. Don't just stick with the obvious. And so I've taken that, I think, pretty much to heart. And do you have any advice, Mar- like Martha Lane Fox's famous words to inspire next generation of well, entrepreneurs? That's, that's, yeah, some good pressure. We um, can edit out the, 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 you know, the, the space. Yeah, the next 10 minutes of space. That Am gonna I allowed a couple? Please do. Okay, great. So firstly, I would say that, you know, I find sometimes very... It's going to make me feel quite insecure not being able to be put in a box. I don't do this thing. Martha, this thing. And I don't want that thing to always be lastminute.com my whole life. So but one quote is, I'm not Martha Lane no, Box. No, Martha Lane, nice one. <laughs> but the only reason I mention it is because the thing that has defined all the stuff I do is working around technology and within the internet sector, if you like. And I'm not a technologist. I'm not a coder. But I am not scared of it. And I can ask questions. And I find it interesting. And I would just say... Whatever the AIs do in the next 20 years, you are never going to be uh, in a bad position if you can be curious about technology and get involved as much or as little as you feel you can. I think that is just a thing to be in and not shy of. So that's my first thing. Second thing is um, to have a hinterland, you know. It's really, really important, I think, to be a human being and not to become this kind of blind, just entrepreneur or just this kind of person to have, read books, go to the theatre if you can, go and see stuff, be involved in the world beyond the bit of it that you might get up and work in every day. That has given me massive strength and some of the things I've loved most in my life. You know, I was a judge of the Bailey's Prize, Women's Prize for Fiction, and then I joined the board and now I'm on the board of the Donmar Warehouse. And you know, some of those links can be made in your life and you're lucky and other times it can just give you some fun some joy, some, you know, different ways of thinking about stuff. So keep reading, read a poem every day. That's my second thing. And I think the third thing is specifically for any young women that might be listening, because frankly, it's harder, full stop. I'm sorry, but it is. And I think never feel frightened to make your voice heard. Just use it because I have spent a lot of time and I still do if I'm candid. You know, it's intimidating going to the House of Lords. It's intimidating standing up in that chamber. And sometimes I think I can't, but I do. And I try to just keep being present because it's really important. So if you can take any inspiration from the fact that you might look at me and think I'm the most confident person in the world, and in some ways I'm lucky I am, but it still takes a trick sometimes to make that voice come out. So please never feel that your voice isn't worth putting out there. I feel like the uh, the the mix of the luck and the voice has led us back to lucky <laughs> there we voice. Go. Perhaps Nicely I don't done. I don't actually believe it was that uh, Japanese done. firm at all. It was you all along. <laughs> Nicely um, done. <laughs> this has been great. Thank you so much for your time, Martha. No, thanks for having me. Next week on Secret Leaders. I got a phone call from about nine thirty p.m. and my warehouse manager said, "William, there's a fire at the warehouse." You know, pardon the vernacular, but sort of imagine pissing onto a bonfire. You, know, you don't do much to it. The fire engines had a massive hose, enormous quantity of water going on, but you know, it was a big fire. That was Will Reeve, the co-founder of Love Film, that you all now know as Amazon Video. But he was also the co-founder of Secret Escapes, the first investor in Greys, and, well, basically, his career is the kind of thing you can only dream of. And he shares this experience and advice for managing tough moments that have led to his success. So if you want to follow in those kind of footsteps, then tune in, or you'll miss out. (laughs) 
We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by your host, that's me, Dan Murray Serta, producer, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and if you've heard this, it'll probably have something to do with Jennifer Osman in Canada. You'll also notice throughout this series we've got some beautiful illustrations made for every episode, and that's all thanks to Christina Naru of smartupvisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming Secret Leaders live events on secretleaders.com. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe on whatever media player you use. Just follow us at Secret Leaders on Instagram or at Secret Leaders 1 on Twitter. And tell just one friend about how freaking awesome this episode is. If you want to go the extra mile, I'm at Dan Murray Serta on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'd love to see you take some screenshots of the episode you're listening to and share it across your social media. It'll bring a tear to our eye and joy to our hearts. See you next week. Tune in or you'll miss out.